Hey, folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga La Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Or maybe you're listening online through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. Today on the show, I get to talk to Casey McFarland, one of the co-authors of the New Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nests, along with Matthew Mangello and David Moskovich, uh, recently released by HMH. Casey, do you, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? But sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, first, I would just like to say thank you, Byron, for having me on and for the work that you do in the world. I, I really appreciate what you're up to and the message and the perspective that you're putting out there. So it's, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Casey McFarland. I am hailing from what's now Northern Utah. Um, we moved out here this summer, actually, so it's new country for us. And um, my primary role in the, in the world is to train other folks to read and interpret the signs of life on planet Earth. So, so the tracks and sign of, of everything that's out there, basically, um, that we can at least wrap our minds around. And then on the side, I work on projects like this. And so um, I, we've, we've come together, I think, mostly to talk about bird nests and how cool they are. And of course, they're, they're makers themselves. The book is fantastic. It's like, it's really nice, really beautiful to look at. I love feeling the weight of it. There's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff packed in here. Right. Um, I've been using the Eastern Bird Nests uh, by Hal Harrison for years. Yes. So this is a great maybe update companion we can get into that but it's been a long time coming it's got a lot of stuff i think it mentioned you know 650 species covered in the book yeah 700 beautiful photos how many years were you matthew and david working on this well so they actually started kicking the idea around in in 2013 and okay. there was there was some false starts and it's actually it's a it's kind of a funny story but um, we, I got involved in 2015, I believe it was. And so in, in the end, we, it took a better part of, of four years of our lives of actual, um, intensive work. Are y'all, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Are y'all all located in like the, the, the Western half of the continent? No. So, uh, Matt Mangello lives out in Maine and Dave is up in, Eastern Washington. And I, I was in New Mexico and Colorado for the, the portion that of those years. So we all splitting up the duties of like, you go find, you know, uh, you know, a, a red wing black, or I guess, I don't know, even know the range, whatever, whatever, whatever you can, whatever you can possibly find. Go find it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we, we did. So we split things up. Matt did a ton of work out on the eastern, eastern seaboard and down into the south. Spent a lot of time. He's got some great stories of, of um, listening to alligators growl way too close to him <laughs> and, um, and, and coming out and having to buy, buy uh, snake gators for all the, the copperheads that mm. we're about. And, um, and, but then what, one of the best parts of this was we would get together, of course, to write and to figure out how we were going to wrap our heads around everything and, and what we were even trying to accomplish. And, but then we would also get together to go meet up with folks to find nests or just to go find nests on ourselves. So, um, 
So we kind of bounced around. I, I went to 10 different states on all those journeys. And I don't even know how many Matt went to. He went to a ton. Matt was our star nest finder. Um, the majority of our photos um, in, well, I'm not sure about the majority, but Matt certainly found a ton of nests. So he has just beautiful photographs peppered all throughout the guide. So we had, we had a lot of fun together. You're all photographers. Like, I think I saw that on your website, on David's website. I saw on Matthew's uh, maybe now defunct Instagram that you're all taking these beautiful photographs. And I was wondering, like, do you think that this, this book improved your photography skills, challenged you? Oh, a- absolutely. And, and what I'd say right off the bat is, is Dave is the professional photographer among us. And I had dappled in it. Matt was also, you know, he had dappled as well. But then when it came down to actually needing to get very good um, and consistent photos, we actually would go out with Dave and, um, and he'd struggle us through some of the, some of the intricacies of, of filming, you know, in outdoor settings, of course, but also nests themselves just proved really, really challenging. And so, um, you know, obviously nests are, they tend to be fairly hidden away Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's an intense dappling of light. And so you're trying to figure all this out and shade the whole area all while not being, um, trying to be very, very conscious of the birds that we were very much invading the space of and taking tips from researchers that were, that were doing the same work. And so it was just this, it was this balance of wanting to get in and out while getting good, quick photos that could tell a story of the species nest and it's, and it's life. And, and so it, it, it definitely made me a better photographer for sure. That. That brings up a question I was going to ask later, but I'll ask you now is that like sure. in Hal Harrison's book, um, the Peterson Eastern Birds Nest that I have, there are some photos where the cavity nests are located within trees, but the tops of the trees look like they've been cut off, right. exposing the nest to the camera. And, you know, this is pretty intrusive. Absolutely. And I was wondering about like, did you all have a goal of minimal intrusion on the nest that you're when you when you were making the book? And oh also, yeah. did you have any advice for folks who like want to practice photographing nests, but without being invasive or disturbing the occupants or the structure itself? Yes. And, and I'm glad we're talking. We always cover this in, in conversations, but it's good to do it right up front. And um, yeah, so I think over the years, there's been a, there's been a gradient of what's acceptable for um you know, the production of field guides and, and field work in itself, research and that, but it is, it's wild to, to look at those old photos and see that, yeah, they had just literally would cut down a, an old rotten tree with a chickadee nest in it. And we, of course, were not willing to do that, but there's been all kinds of cool advancements too. And so a, a couple notes on that for one, there's researchers that have these amazing little cable um, cameras now that they can run into cavity nests that have a little light on them and everything. And they can get fantastic views without being, without the parents even knowing that they were there, which is pretty neat. And, um, the other thing that I would say to, and that just bears, bears acknowledgement is that 
a huge amount of those photos from the book are not ours. And it was the work of going around and, and, and finding folks that had taken photos. So we worked with a ton of researchers who were actually out in the field doing this work already. And so that was a way that we, our own um, personal efforts were, were that the intrusion level was greatly minimized just because we were able to rely on other folks that were doing good work out there and were able to just opportunistically get photos. And, um, but yeah, so the, and what's interesting in nest guides themselves is that if you look back through Hal's book or through, through, um, nests, eggs, and nestlings, mm -hmm. and, and a bunch of these other wonderful books, they often prefaced the book by talking about the old school hobbies of collecting nests and eggs. And it used to be this in like just widespread, especially among young boys to go out and, and collect nests and eggs. And, you know, on, on one hand, looking back, um, there's, there's a certain um, appreciation for, for kids actually wanting to learn about their woods and wanting to know every bird that was out there and recognize males from females and actually find nests and, and do all this thing. On the other hand, it was obviously very destructive and, and extremely um, unpleasant and, and traumatic, if you will, for the, the, the birds that were losing their, their clutches themselves. But what's happened is that has drifted away. And now one of the major things that we're facing is that we all have a camera in our pocket and we all have this incessant human um, desire to share. And so mm -hmm. now what we're really wrestling with is, is that we, we just need to give birds space and, and mm -hmm. to be aware of it. So a lot of the, the purpose of this book um, was to just have another window into how incredible and how varied and how gorgeous bird nests are. And to also facilitate an understanding of that they're filling countless little niches in the forest and in the cliff faces and on tundra and, and, and giving us an idea of places where we should be for one, just aware that birds are nesting out there. And that during those very, very sensitive times that we are going into the forests with a greater understanding and, and conscientiousness about what's going on out there. And so I know that's a very long winded answer, but in short for me, my, my primary way of doing that is to be able to recognize behavior to know that there's a nest nearby and then steering clear of it. And then mm -hmm. after the season is done, go in and maybe sniff around to try to find that nest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded, I have a few of the Arthur Bentz books, yeah, uh, the yes. life histories of North American birds. And when you read those accounts that are in those books, there's a lot of like that old timey yep. climb the tree or cut it down so you can get at the nest. Yeah. Keep the bird as a pet. And then the like, I don't know what happens from there. They don't describe the yeah. trauma that the bird faced. Exactly. But yeah, I, I appreciate that there's some changes going on in how people are collecting and researching and recording this data. Yeah. Um, Hal Harrison's book, I wanted to refer to it one more time. Now, it was it was a great help for me over the past years. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's opened my eyes so much, helped me identify so so much, and and like help those folks that I've, I've worked with and, and know, uh, help me understand 
nests that I'm seeing and nests that I'm not seeing. You know, it's just a really great book. And yeah. you know this book, and, and I'm sure that this book, ha- you've got a bit of a relationship with this book. And I was wondering what your experience with Hal's book is and the legacy that you're sort of taking on with yours. Well, uh, that's that's a great question because um, so those books originally, I think the first one, that Hal's books, which were the original Peterson Field Guides to Nests, of course, um, they the first one came out in 1976. And when we proposed the... Uh, the new book to Peterson, the, um, the first one had gone out of print and they were planning to pull the second one. And I can't remember which one it was in what order. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was a timely thing. And yet at the same time, we, there, there's this part of me for sure that wants to, wants everyone to know that our book <laughs> didn't make those other books go away because I think they are some of the most incredible guides out there and they were so helpful to us. And I don't remember which one I had on my shelf first that goes way back. But I mean, one of the things also for us was when we started into this journey ourselves and knowing that we wanted to contribute some of the nest photography ourselves, it was mind blowing what how Harrison was able to to capture in the field with, with a film camera and flash and get full clutches of, of nests of all of these different species. And of course he traveled all over and worked with a lot of researchers as well, but he and his wife turns out who was very, very helpful and just, just awesome in the woods as well. Um, they just did incredible amounts of work. And honestly, I mean, that book was open constantly when we were in the woods and constantly when we were writing the book, it was, it was just an invaluable resource. And so a lot of Hal's work is definitely living on in the new guide. I just want to honor uh, Hal's wife, Matta, Matta Harrison. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I just think there's a quote. I can't remember where the, I think they're quoting someone else, but I think it's that movie days confused. It's like behind every great man is a, great lady or something like that Isn't I can't that the truth yeah some some of the parts in your book though are, are very different like there's so many exciting parts in your book that i wish i'd gotten to earlier right. in my life that like i'm so grateful they're here now and i can share and we can learn we're all teaching each other all the time right but like one of the things um that i really appreciate there's, there's a key almost like there's yes. the details of the various nest categories species who might be building those nests and they fall into different categories. And this wasn't in the other book. And some of them might be like, uh, I'm going to read it, globular or domed roof nests, constructed overhead canopy. And so it's got like different birds that might fit into that uh, outer layer decorated with lichen flakes. So like most hummingbirds, eastern and greater wood peewees, olive warblers, most gnat catchers, some vireos. And just there's big sections here cup nests set on rafters, uh, large stick nests in shrubs and trees, large nests on rocks or cliff ledges. And that's a great way to start because yes. like you find it, you're like, okay, now what? Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, so, and oh, go ahead. No, no, no. That's good. Yeah. So that was, that was part of our aim for all of this was, and, and really well, so many of the components of this, of course, are, are modeled on older guides and, mm-hmm. and the hard work that other folks have put into it. And then a lot of it also came from us 
just struggling to wrap our own minds around, you know, if you find a nest, like you say, then what, you know, especially a nest that's out of season, you know, it's kind of sagged out with, with the fall weather or whatever it is. And, and so it becomes this whole ecological and naturalist journey to try to sort through and put together the clues at hand to try to figure it out. And one of the things, of course, was that key itself. And that key is actually modeled after one in nest eggs and nestlings, which is really mm. cool. And they get really, they, they, they've got all of these additional key components to eggs themselves and to nestlings, which is really interesting. But we looked at their at their key for the nests themselves. And then we started pulling apart features that we liked and then adding all these new features that we thought were, were really helpful. And so it's a cool combination of those two things. And, and it is a great, like, you know, what's gonna happen with this book is someone might pick it up and, you know, or they'll wander into the woods and they'll find a nest. And then they'll say, okay, cool. And they'll come back home and they'll pick up the book. And of course it's going to be overwhelming because it's just loaded with stuff. And mm -hmm. so what we tried to do is say, okay, how do we break up the families themselves into different nest types? Um, how can we create, tie a key to that so that people can say, okay, if the nest looks like this, well, I know that it's, it could be in this family, it could be in this family, it could be in this family, and there's still going to be a lot of families, but then our job is to go through and start flipping through. And by default, the way guides, of course, are working is that we're then exposed to all of this different yeah. super cool stuff where you're like, no, and, and we might not even know about some of the birds in this, in this book. And, and so, and the other thing that I think about too, and that I encourage folks to do is that Typically, when we're using field guides, at least a, cl a classic way of using field guides is to is to find something and then go back to the guide and try to identify it. And and a, another useful way of going about it, of course, is that if if we're interested in nests, is to actually think about a bird that we really like, that we have a connection with, that that moves something in us, and then and then look up that nest and then begin to start filtering your home landscapes mm. through the information that you learned about that nest. And then just the act of beginning to become a, a nest searcher, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, it completely changes the way we see our woods, which is so cool. And then what about like, that's a great first step. And then like now it's become a mission, right? Like right. once you have that nest in mind, now you've learned a little bit about it. Now you've, figure out, okay, maybe it's by the river. I'm going to go to the river and seek out this nest. And maybe that's a good thing right. for this time of year, you know, the, the exactly. season's over and yeah. migration's about to begin or is beginning. So yeah, it's a great move. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I love about this is I was just talking with somebody the other day and I, I feel like such a kid when I look through it because it's just loaded with pictures. And even if you don't read any of the text, um, yeah, it, it's just so cool to see all of these different birds building different kinds of nests in all of these spots. And just as we flip through what starts happening in our, in our tracker's mind is that like when we, we are walking down by the river, if you see a cut bank, all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, 
I wonder if kingfishers have ever done that yeah. or, or like maybe there's like bank swallows and then you look over and there's a dead snag and you're like, whoa, what about that? And then there's clumps of grass and you're like, holy cow, there was, there was some birds that were in clumps of grass and like every little nook and cranny could potentially hold the nest. And it just kind of changes the way it tweaks our mind a little bit, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And that's something I love about this book is that you bring in a lot of the ecology, right? A lot of the relationships, it's about relationships, um, right helping folks understand the connections between the bird and the place that it may be located. Um, right. it's, it's architectural form as well. And the materials in the nest, like right. you're tying in all these things to get a better understanding of, of the ecology. Yeah. And I was wondering, why do you think this is important? Why is this important to consider this broader ecological view when thinking about nests? Well, so, and what I'll say too, is that, um, I wish that this book could have been, I mean, I'm glad it isn't in many regards, but I wish it could have been three times as long and really been able to, to dive into the incredible depths of, of that topic in particular. Um, but what's so, I mean, for me as an individual, and I think one of the reasons as we start thinking about nests that's so powerful is, is that ecological connection. And one of the ways I started thinking about this from a tracker's perspective is that sign, you know, like we've basically, we can roughly break the art of tracking into two components where you've got tracks, the actual physical imprints that the feet or whatever's moving the body along the, the surface of earth are leaving. And then you have all the sign, which is how that animal is actually expressing its particular behaviors on the landscape. And, and painting how they are and who they are and how they live in all these different ways, you know, on sign on trees and digs and um, whatever it may be. And, and so what's cool about sign is that when we see sign, we don't see any of the actual physical markings of the animal itself, like its feet, but, but the, you know, looking at a buck rub, you suddenly are, you're able to understand how this animal is communicating with the world around it, with other, mm. with other deer species and who else is coming up with the other species that are checking out old deer rubs and all that kind of thing. And so you start making these larger connections, or you might have scats on the landscape that have a certain thing in them, like pignon nuts or apricot seeds. And you know, that there aren't apricot trees except for four miles down the, the, the valley at old Owen's place or whatever. And yet that coyote, and you're like, oh, all of a sudden there's a coyote on the landscape, but you also see how that coyote is using space as well in this very different way. And so sign begins to make the connections. And what's so cool about bird nests is that they are this very powerful sign. And so there's a couple elements there. Like um, if we think about an American dipper, which are just the coolest birds ever, you know, these for folks that might not be familiar with them. They're that very sleek looking um, songbird that, that has this characteristic dip where they bob and they stand at the edges of these clear rushing rivers and, and creeks. And they actually jump into the water and swim and basically fly around underwater hunting invertebrates and, and whatever they can get their beaks on. And just this incredible animal, but they build these beautiful globular nest. So it's like the size of a basketball, a little smaller, perhaps, um, depending on where they're built. And a lot of times they're built right over rushing cold mountain creeks and stuff. Mm. 
And so you think about it, like, and there's a picture in the book that I just love because it's this nest wedged up into these wet rocks overhanging this rushing water. And you can just imagine all the mist and you imagine these little, Amer these little dippers hatching out into this roar of water where they can feel the, the droplets of water, the moisture in the air, the coolness in the morning and the evening. And, and they literally emerge into the world as an aquatic animal that is comfortable with all of that. And for me as an individual, I just think that's so cool. And like, I wish that I had some of those qualities myself. And, um, and so in a very immediate level, you're like, wow, this nest is saying something about who this bird is. Because, you know, a robin might have built a nest 30 feet behind in a, in a bank, or I'm sorry, in a tree near the bank, and it's an entirely different nest, and that little robin hatches out in an entirely different world. Mm. And, um, and so just immediately, nests are teaching us about who these little birds are. Um, who their character might be and, and how they see the world. And, and some of that is happening, of course, because of the actual materials in the nests. And that's another cool thing. I know I'm, I'm going on and on here, but. Oh, I um, love this stuff. I love this okay, stuff. Great. Yeah, great. So, and, and, you know, as we begin to look at old nests, it's, it's just fun to think about like, oh, okay. Um, this little bird must've been going all over here to collect this inner cottonwood bark, you know? So all of a sudden you can see how for this bird, it's got an eye on the landscape for cottonwood bark say, or, or, you know, you get into some of the, like, like the bush tits and they are amazing at finding spider egg sacs or some of the vireos are the same and, and lichens for hummingbirds and for gnat catchers and, and their world, it's just fun to think about them with that kind of hunter's mindset where they, they know where things are on the landscape. They know where to look for them. And, and so when we look at a nest itself, it's literally telling a story of how a bird was thinking about its place and where it was going to get things and what it likes and how it builds. And it's just a, it's a really fun mental exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine. And it's just like helping me already just hearing the stories. And I just looked up that photograph of the American Dipper Nest. And yeah, isn't that cool? That's amazing. It's like, what a river. You know? I, exactly. Like, yeah. Well, and it, yeah. And it makes me like, I've, I've got all these questions around that too. Like, well, how, how do they fledge out of that? Yeah. Nest? yeah. And, and how many drop into the water and how good at they are, are they at swimming and and, and getting tumbled along and being okay with it. And maybe some don't make it. And, yeah. And, but then the, 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 the next step to that in my mind is, you know, the same way we were looking at how a coyote scat might tell us about how that animal is using the landscape spatially nests, many of them on in these migratory species become a sign of something that is so huge, it's mind boggling, you know? And mm -hmm. um, it's so like cliff swallows or, or, or some of the warblers or, you know, rufous hummingbirds, their sign in the trees say up, the rufous might be nesting up in Alaska somewhere. And yet when we look at that sign in the winter time, say, we can imagine that little rufous hummingbird down in Mexico. <laughs> and it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the stories these nests tell when the more we know about them and the more we give ourselves the opportunity to find out who they are and what these birds are doing in the world, it just, it expands our own sense of place 
amazingly. And it's, and it's the birds, of course, that are, that are giving us that. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Casey McFarland, one of the, one of the co-authors of the new Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nests, uh, along with Matthew Mangello and David Moskovitz. Um, I, I was wondering, what was your word count before editing? Uh, before editing, that's a good yeah. question. Um, so I think, I think we came in before the acknowledgements and all of that and all the index and all that. Yeah. Um, we came in right around on target. I think we were like 115,000 words. And I think that we probably hacked out about 5,000 words throughout the process, but I really, it, it was such a, it was this continual whittle down, go back, whittle down throughout that I can't recall, but yeah, I, the, the final word count is right around 110,000 words or 113, yeah. something like that. And they're packed in. They are like, packed in. There's a lot here. It's yes. great. Um, I just also want to like let folks know if you're interested in this book, that you've also co-authored two other books, Bird Feathers with S. David Scott. Um, yep which has been blowing my mind recently because I'm, I, I was reading it again in preparation for this. And then I started doing this. I started looking into melanin and keratin and, cool. and what strengthens the feathers. And I found yep. this one blue jay feather where the white tip has been worn away, but everything else is intact. Yep. And it's like, Oh my gosh. It's just like, <laughs> cool. it's so good. It's so good. Awesome. So I stayed up late last night and just like, writing and researching and reading awesome. all these papers it's so good so thank you for that book and Certainly. also you helped you helped mark elbrock with the second edition of mammal tracks and sign correct and, um if people have been listening to the show for a while i interviewed mark when that book came out oh and cool that that's a fantastic book with my i'm in my third year of a tracking apprenticeship and that's our go-to both those books, in fact, like every time we go out, we were bringing out both those books. Awesome. Oh, that's the great. Side. So thank you very much for putting those out there. Absolutely. Um, and something else, I think, I think I heard at the North American Trackers Conference that was online this year oh, yeah. um, that maybe Mark has taken a step back, but maybe you've taken a step up in CyberTracker. And I was yes. wondering if you wanted to talk to folks, like tell us a little bit more about CyberTracker. Sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So CyberTracker, uh, the, which the, the name right off, right off the bat can um, cause a little bit of confusion we found, but yeah. the, the history behind it is, is just really rich and beautiful. And so it comes from South Africa. And um, back in the day, back in the 80s, a, a man by the name of Louis Liebenberg um, began a, a tracking journey with the Son Bushman and was just blown away by the tracker's ability to recreate accurate stories and just soak up massive amounts of beautiful, ecological, and accurate information from their landscape. And through a long process, which I'll, I'll skip through here, um, they working together be- created cyber tracker software and a cyber tracker evaluation process, which came first, which was just a way to get together with trackers and, and help train new trackers and to identify the dwindling few amazing trackers. And then in order to create work, he created a handheld um like a, a database collection 
that that allowed illiterate quote unquote folks who were phenomenally ecologically literate the ability to actually record data in the field from what they were seeing from tracks and sign. And so that's where the name cyber tracker comes from. And the process now runs all over the world. We've been, we've been full at it here in North America since 2005. And, and the process is just incredible. It comes in an assessment form. So you get asked 25, I'm sorry, 55 questions or so in over two days about tracks and sign of everything in little chunks and blocks. And it is so much fun because you get to sit there and ponder. And we, we have folks who are highly experienced or have no experience at all. And you get to come in and just be like, just peel back the veil on all of the sign on the landscape. And then we go through each thing as a group and just talk about natural history and foot morphology and physiology and behavior and, and useful identifying characteristics and the difference between animals and ecological relationships. And so it's just a really fun two-day training process. We also have a trailing component, which, which f f focuses completely around the skill and art of finding fresh tracks and trying to follow them with the with the intent of seeing the animal undetected. So that's the that's the gist and and um, yeah, we're chugging along. It's, it's an amazing uh, program or, or or certification process that I've I've learned a lot. Right before the pandemic, um, some friends and I were trying to organize getting oh. George, George Leoniak to come up nice. again. Yes, yes. Um, but you know everything got shut down so we didn't do it Jeez. but maybe in the new year we'll see what happens cool fantastic but yeah it's 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 really neat to hear about folks and hear what they're doing and how how the evaluators and, and folks that are getting certified aren't just you know like i think some people have this idea about trackers and tracking that it's sort of this macho sport right but it's like it's such a learning teaching um sharing environment from what i've seen and yes. from what I've heard from folks who've got to participate in evaluations, they learn so much. It's often been like really, really welcoming environment yeah. where folks are like really encouraged to like, it's, it, it's one of my teachers, Alexis Burnett describes it as like, it doesn't point out where you're wrong. It points out where you want to learn. Nice. And, well, and so I, I really appreciate that. I really yeah. appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Well, it's a big world out there and we all have, an endless amount of learning and absorbing to do. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a process for all of us. And that's what I love about it is that, you know, every time I run an eval, um, every one of us in the group, myself included, is a better wildlife tracker at the end of the, the end of the two days. Cause that's just how it works. And, um, and there's some stuff that, that we just will never be able to sort through. And, and, um, yeah, it's really fun. I wanted to get some, some questions that friends have offered and folks sure. from work. Um, first one, I, a couple of these come from my friend, Christina Yu in Toronto. And Christina asked, uh, certain city songbirds will line their nests with cigarette butts to harness the antiparasitic properties. Have you found uh, other interesting human-made materials incorporated in the bird's nest that have beneficial effects for the nestlings? Uh, that's a great question. So um, I've heard about the cigarettes and I've, I've never seen it myself, but that's definitely on the list. I would be so excited, but yeah, there is all kinds of weird things that show up in nests and, and some species, some of the fly catchers and some of the vireos, um, and I'm sure there's many, many more, uh, they love using like plastic bags. And, and a lot of times some of those birds, like the fly catchers, 
were they would typically use snake skins and things in there too. So I don't know if some of this is a replacement or um, or is serving a similar purpose. I don't know, but some of the weird things that I've seen, of course, um, and I'm betting many of the listeners, if they've looked at Oriole nests, a lot of times you'll see Oriole nests made completely out of fishing line or out of baling twine from mm-hmm. old hay bales from farm, farm country. And um, I've seen barbed wire in nest, which is really interesting. Um, in, that was in an old raven's nest or something of the sort. I actually don't really know what it was. It was all beat down on my way back from Texas once. And um, trying to think what else. I've seen in nests. Um, I can't, I, I would have liked to have thought about that one a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what's so, what's so neat about it all, if uh, from just the, just from a coolness factor is, is that it, it seemed like birds have these very particular materials that they like using and they, and that they know will, will per- perform in a particular way. And so if they don't have that material, there's, they've seemed really ingenious at finding replacements for it, substitutes. Mm. And so that's where you get all these cool things like long stringing materials being used and, and, um, and, you know, dog hair and pillow fluff and whatever it is going into nests that just, they're like, Oh, this is great. Another question that Christina had were, uh, what are some examples of different bird species that co-nest? For example, she's seen red-winged blackbirds and osprey often nest together, osprey on top with the red-winged blackbirds Interesting. on the bottom. Cool. Um, so apparently some of, the, some of the sparrows, and I can't remember if it was just house sparrows um, or who they were now, I'd have to look that up. Um, and then maybe, I can't remember what the other, maybe some finches, will also nest right inside of big raptor nests, which is kind of cool to think about them flitting in and out. And, um, you know, here, here's these species that given the chance they'll mob and, and harass when they can, when they're on the wing or sitting on a, you know, on a telephone pole somewhere. Um, but then it becomes very, very handy in this very different type of relationship where they don't mind each other's business at all um, to nest together. And there's a number of things. Um, apparently, some of the Orioles will actually nest near magpies because magpies will keep away other marauders like jays mm. and crows. And so that becomes a mutual, or I, I should say, I don't know if the court, if the magpies are benefiting at all. And and I've yeah, there's a whole lot of cool things like that. And down in South America, some I think it was some of the wrens will nest right near. Um, big wasp nests and all kinds of stuff to keep monkeys away. And so there's all these little tricks of the trade out there that, that birds have, have used to, to kind of fortify their, their offspring. Uh, my friend Tamara Anderson, uh, probably my first inspiration to get out into tracking and to start learning. She, one of my favorite tracking teachers, so humble, but we're also so knowledgeable Oh, best time. Uh, she she saw uh, you talk as part of a a bird themed series of of online webinars, maybe earlier this year or yeah, last yeah. year, and um, she was telling me a story that you told about trying to find a nest and then finding a bobcat. Oh yeah, and um, she was wondering, well, who do you like tracking more, mammals or birds? Oh, that's a that's a cool question. Um, 
I always, I kind of feel bad about questions like this Yeah, because um, I never have a good, clean answer. Yeah, And um, I think it, it seems to vary um, by what I'm finding. And because I honestly, I, you know, if it's a teeny tiny little winter wren nest, I can be just as excited and blown away and bowled over by that than finding a fresh mountain lion kill. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the feeling is very different and what it elicits, elicits deep in our, in our, in our humanness, in our, in our, you know, earthly psyche, I think is different and fun to kind of feel into, but both of them have so much to offer and so much to teach about life that it's just kind of fun to, you know, um, pinball back and forth and just get bounced around by all these incredible animals doing incredible things. I got a couple more questions, but, um, well, I'll give you one more from Christina. She wrote, what's the strangest bird nest location you've ever encountered? Oh, that's a good question. Um, oh gosh, this would be another one I would love to. If you want to think about it for a bit, I can ask you another one. We can come back to that. Sure. Great. So I was just wondering if you actually had any stories from the field. So maybe that's another one you need to think about, but like stories from the field while you're working on the book, things that you saw or just amazed you that really like you'll you'll remember forever. Well, so I'll come back because I can tell it very quickly to that Bobcat story. And I apologize for, um, for repeating it for the, for the one person that's heard it, perhaps many people, but um, it's good because it just, I think that it, exemplifies some of the process. And, um, I was in New Mexico waiting along the Rio Grande along this incredibly thick spot and the water was about waist deep and, and moving fast. And, um, and I was trying to get back into land, but the brush was so thick. I had to keep going down river and I was like fighting through the branches and it was not graceful. And, and, um, it, it, you know, it was, and I was trying to keep my camera out of the water and my hat is pushed down into my eyes and my, you know, my clothes are all tangled and sopping around me. And I'm sort of thrashing around just trying to get out of the river. And, and I finally look up and I see this little teeny opening where I can go through. And so I sort of struggle my way there very much kind of like a toddler fighting through some brush, you know, and, and just feeling pretty discombobulated and and unskilled (laughs) in life in general. And, and I looked up and, and I just right on the bank, right next to me was this massive male bobcat. And it was so cool because, and he was just sitting there looking at me and I'd been seeing up the river and around, I'd been seeing these huge latrine sites. And I was like, dang, that's a big old bobcat right there. And, um, and, and from what I can tell there he was. And, and it was so neat because he had been drinking water and we just looked and I was close enough that just that golden sort of universe of his eyes was very apparent and he had water dripping off of his chin because he'd been drinking water and I just sort of stood there with my mouth hanging open and he just sat there and watched me and was like what because it was totally out of context for him and then he just turned and slipped and went off into the woods and I followed behind um, to get out of the river but but it was just one of those moments that 
it was one of my favorite encounters with with the mammalian critters during the whole process. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I I didn't hear that story before, so I appreciate cool. you telling me that. Sure. I just had my first encounter with a bobcat, so that's wonderful to hear another person's experience as well. Just build on that that know that knowledge base that I have now, hanging up by the river. Cool. So, could you do you think you you could tell the strangest bird nest location Gosh. or? Um, well, so I, 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 just from the top of my head, um, I don't, there, of the nests that I have seen, um, I don't have anything that strikes me as, as a, mm-hmm. as an odd place. Um, yeah. although there have been many nests where it looks like they just started a nest in a, in a spot that was completely, you can tell it just wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, and so you, and there's like material hanging off and, and sort of a crummy base of a nest. And I have wondered about that, but, but yeah, by far and large, it's, it's just that it's the, it's the incredible diversity and the, and a lot of times the sheer, the placement that is so perfect um, for camouflage. And of course, well, you know, if we start thinking about doves and stuff, building them like in major water spouts and things like that. They are, those are pretty strange places because you can see that um, they're, they're, they're not thinking through what will happen and the way some of the other species might, but yeah, I think that's all I've really got for that. I think that's, that's I just maybe indicative that the birds know what's best, you know, they know where to build and they know where it's going to be safe and they're probably not going to too often put the nests in a place that might seem weird for us because they know, they know what they got to do. That's a good point. So, and and that actually brings up an interesting thing because um, I do think quite a few nests are lost because, because of poor placement. Mm. Uh, And, and I don't know if that's something that birds will get better at over time. Certainly there's been a lot of research that indicates that birds do get better at nesting and building nests over time and, and placement, I would imagine as part of that. But I have seen that did, I, I, I saw there was an Inca dove down in Texas in Big Bend once. And she had built this really, build these super cool little nests then build up with, with scats. In fact, there's a picture of it in the guide, but I felt so bad. There was these two little, all the doves lay two eggs, just like clockwork, bam, bam, bam. And so there was these two little nestlings in there and it was baking hot. And mm. for a good portion of the day, they just roasted in the sun to the point where that, that you know, the funny part of us that can be like, should I help these <laughs> was coming up? Obviously I didn't, I didn't interfere, but it was just amazing to watch these two little naked like weird scruffly pin feathery hair you know just they just look like crazy little dinosaurs just panting just for their their lives just roasting in the sun i I was like that's that's a weird place um and as far as i know they made it no worse for the wear i remember reading papers on um or a paper on red-tailed hawks nesting on billboards interesting and i I thought that was pretty interesting and i can't I can't remember the name of the paper or who wrote it. So maybe I'm just imagining it, but I know it's, it's an occurrence that happens. Um, yeah. Probably just Google it and find out more yeah. if people are interested in that. But I was wondering, and I know this isn't the topic of your research, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I read your book, 
But I was wondering if you thought that bird nests could have been maybe an influence on the basket weaving technologies around the world. Oh, I, I think that, I think that we learned a massive amount about a lot of life from birds and, and certainly, and certainly um, shelter building and home building. And when, you know, you start looking at a bunch of these nests and of course, like the cliff swallows, which are just this whole other journey where they're, they're one of the only species that uses only mud in their nests. And they, and the way they're doing it is just incredible. And the techniques that they have and, and the types of, of, of mud mixtures that they're finding is just so cool. And, um, I have at least, you know, to, I would say, I have no doubt, um, others may disagree, but I, I think that, that we've been watching swallows for a very long time and, and learning how they were building walls literally as in part of the sequence of their nests. And then other birds are mixing mud and debris and, and making an adobe of sorts. Um, Mm. and, and, and just, and, and, you know, even Robin nests are doing this incredible thing where they're building an outer structure of vegetative material. And then they line that with clean mud and muck, and then they let that dry. And, and so that just reinforcing, you know, that people, humans have been looking at those things for a long time and being like, dang, that's a good idea. Um, and then of course the weavers are just so cool. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when they look at the actual weavers from Africa and then, and, and compare them with the weavers in, uh, in, in North America, like the Orioles and the Oropendulas down in South America. And they're, and they're all using the same knots and they have like bonafide knots, you know, and you can see cool diagrams of that in some of the books. Um, we don't have it in ours, unfortunately, but, but, and then when you're looking at the red wings and yellow and, you know, the, the yellow headed blackbirds and, and tricolors and you, and you see those, those nests woven among, you know, six or seven, upright cattail stalks and it is perfect weave and waft basketry work and you're like wow that yeah i i would imagine that that had some um serious influence on us i don't know how everything timed out together but but um they were doing that a long time and certainly uh, birds were doing that before we started doing it Mm -hmm. so i think they were teachers for us for sure the folks are just tuning in. It's, we're, we're talking to, I'm talking to Casey McFarland, one of the co-authors of the Peterson Field Guide of North American Bird Nests with Matthew Mangello and David Moskovitz. Casey, thank you for taking the time to, well, first to, to, to put out this book. You know, like this is how, if, if the birds taught us, this is how our, our mentors and our teachers like mm-hmm. you, you, Matthew and David can teach the world right like we can teach other folks through these books and then not only to teach and to educate but to inspire and to move people into knowing more about Mm. the land where they live the birds they live on or the birds that live there Mm. and it's so it's i don't it's awe-inspiring and it's full of wonder and it's it's full of magic to check out all these bird nests Mm. And right. to read about the, like the ecologies that are associated with them, how the birds create them, live with them, who they live near. And to, and to like, like you said at the beginning of like, maybe this could be uh, a thing where you tune into a bird that you really want, that you really appreciate, you really enjoy and to head out and make this sort of a, a treasure map. You know, right. the, the book becomes a treasure map instead of yeah. 
something after that you see when you when you're, right. when you're coming back home. So thank you so much for putting in the work to make this. And thank you for putting in the time to talk about it on the show. Absolutely, Byron. I like I say, I just it's a real treat to be here and and I just I thank you so much for for doing the work that you're doing as well. thank Casey McFarland. What an awesome interview. What a great book. This Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nests that he did with Matthew Mangello and Dave Moskowitz. It's out now on HMH. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I think that's what the HMH stands for. But he's also got those other books, Bird Feathers, which has been such a beautiful, beautiful book to to check out, I'm using it all the time. Almost every time I find a bird feather, I'm learning a ton about uh, feather feathers and how, like, why they're shaped certain ways on which kind of birds. It's in depth and detailed. That's with S. David Scott on Stackpole Books, and another one on Stackpole Books is Mammal Tracks and Sign: A Guide to North American Species, the second edition with uh, Mark Albrock, and all his books are just fantastic great books and like to hear it in his voice to hear it in the work he does how excited how enthused he is to be doing this work uh, of learning about the land base and and trying to see those relationships a little bit better and seeing how they work and sharing that information with other people i just really appreciate that sort of thing if you want to hear more about you know the show or anything if you want to learn more about the show you can check out the website, tonowtheland.com. If you've got any criticisms, feedback, ideas, you can hit me up at tonowtheland at gmail.com. I think that's it. That's all. Take care. <laughs>